Welcome to Notes from the Field, presented by Canon Press and Noeo Science. For all your homeschool science needs, be sure to check out noeoscience.com. That's N-O-E-O science.com. N-O-E-O science.com. Well, Gordon, it's good to be here with you again. Yeah, great to be here. Well, notes from the field. Field season is upon us, and uh, we're talking about a, I would say, maybe one of the most important topics, just kind of doing a shallow dive into it today. One of the most important topics regarding how we, how we reconcile, how we fit together, how we think about nature and God's special revelation of Scripture. And there have been um, quite a few, especially here in, the, in recent years, maybe the last, I don't know, 100 years, uh, quite a variety of different interpretations that have infiltrated the church. And so we're going to be talking about one of those today um, that has become, I would say, fairly controversial. Yeah. And that's theistic evolution. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's actually gaining uh, inroads into the, not just liberal churches, but evangelical churches, which is very concerning to me. So, yeah, you said shallow dive. I think it's, it's very easy to get bogged down into real technical definitions. And uh, I think in discussing theistic evolution, I think we can talk about it in its general breadth because there's quite a spectrum um, of theistic evolution. I don't know if you want to give your sort of um, either connotation or denotation of theistic (laughs) evolution. Yeah, uh, I'll I'll start by just referencing a a book that's come out recently, and then we'll reference a couple more here as we chat. Uh, Good good food for thought. Um, In teaching high school biology, this is a very important topic. And I think, and I'd love to hear your perspective on this. When and how and why should the origins discussion come up in the classroom or the homeschool for that matter? And how and how do we approach it as teachers, as parents, as students? And uh, of course, um, biology is is really of the big three, physics, chemistry and biology. This is the one where origins has has the most prominent position. Mm -hmm. Um, And wow. So why is that? Well, Well. You know, it depends on what origins. If you're talking about origins of matter, energy, and everything, then yeah, physics, you know, where, where did matter and energy and, and the laws that govern it come from? So, you've got the- That cosmological and, oh, evolution. Oh, yeah, yeah, the cosmological evolution. Uh, you've got the secular narrative, you know, the Big Bang or steady state, but predominantly the Big Bang. And then you've got biological evolution and uh, abiogenesis, which is the origin of life. And the, the thing about theistic, I think we should define it, you know, is as at some level, theistic evolution is sort of holding on to the general narrative of evolution, of whether it's, uh, you know, cosmological evolution or biological evolution. But in the secular world, it's sort of devoid of any uh, supernatural causation it's basically laws of nature and laws of nature governing matter and then in 
inevitably over eons of time, the universe unfolds in galaxies and clusters, superclusters, down to, you know, stars and planets, and then some planets and Earth is the only one we know of that has life on it. So you either go with the narrative of scripture or you go with the narrative of the secularist who says, we have to explain it purely through naturalistic causation. Right. That materialist and, philosophy. Right. Adherence, strict adherence to that. But somebody who's a Christian or doesn't want to throw God under the bus completely or says, I'm a Christian, but I don't want to cut against the grain, uh, against the, 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 the consensus view, but I don't want to, you know, throw God out. They want God involved in somehow, somehow, some way. And that's where the spectrum of theistic evolution is. You've got God intervening either like in probably the purest form of theistic evolution is where God basically creates matter and energy and maybe just in the big, just in the big bang. And that, uh, then hands off from there. So God creates it all. He kicks it off and then everything sort of unfolds in naturalistic cause effect um, from the, uh, the universe unfolding to life unfolding. That's sort of the, the that's the full-fledged because they really just don't want God as soon as their secular colleagues say that God's just stepping in all the time you know, dribbling the ball, so to speak. If if God kicked it off, they'll say he kicked it off. But if he's dribbling down the field all the way and the ball would be in the universe. Right. If if God's intervening all the time, um, you know, getting stars to form, getting planets to form, getting life to form, it's that's another type of theistic evolution that's has God intervening more often. Right. So that's su- if that's supernatural, if there's if there's a connotation or an inference that supernatural things are happening after God hit the start button, then that's an affront to materialist philosophy. Yeah. And so they, they, they say God's out of bounds. I mean, they'll call a foul if God is brought into the picture at any point. Right. Uh, even um, strict theistic evolutionists who just say God started it and then hands off from there on out. Um, you know, the secularists would say that that's a, you know, that's not allowed. God is not allowed at all. And I think we as Christians need to really anchor ourselves in scripture and not, and not say, oh, what, what does the, the godless secular science say? We, we are too beholding to what the, the prevailing views are. And I think the reason is, is because too often, well, They've gotten a lot of ethos because over the, the last several hundred years, science has done amazing things, especially empirical science. And so, because of that momentum that they've picked up and that authority they've picked up, they can put man on the moon, they can, you know, they can uh, do transplants of organs, they can do all sorts of amazing things, um, biotechnology, you know, uh, recombinant DNA. It's, it's pretty impressive. Right. And then we think, well, these guys are so scary smart. Who am I to say that their narrative of world history and prehistory is all wrong? Right. And you make a really important distinction there between empirical and forensic or historical science. Right. Exactly. And we need to see that there's this 
huge difference between these, you know, empirical science is based on observation, repetition, you can do controlled experiments. And that's why um, uh, an evolutionist and a creationist, when you can be in the lab and do the same experiment and get the same results. Now, sometimes the interpretation might be a little bit different based on the, but, you know, if you're measuring how, how fast a ball drops, you know, how many meters per second squared, I mean, whether you're a, an atheist or a, a Christian, you can see the results of the experiment. Right. But when you're talking about what happened millions of years ago when there was nobody there and you have to look at circumstantial evidence. And you, but you can't just, the circumstantial evidence doesn't tell you everything. Right. And it's like multiplying by fractions. Mm -hmm. you, you're never going to get to one. Mm -hmm. If all of these pieces of circumstantial or, or indirect evidence that have assumptions built into them, if each one, one of those represents a fraction of some sort and you keep multiplying these fractions by each other, they're just going to keep getting smaller. Mm -hmm. you're, and, and that's an analogy of the confidence. Right. Right. You, you're not. Let's say the number one equals perfect confidence. You're just getting farther and farther from one the more you multiply all of these circumstantial pieces of evidence mm -hmm. together. You, know, you see um, like a detective show and you see like Monk or something and he's looking at all this evidence and he's trying to piece together the story. And of course, inevitably, because he's the hero, you know, he figures it all out. But we sometimes put the same kind of trust in science. It's like, oh, they can look at this bone. Um, they can look at this this tooth of a dinosaur, this claw of a dinosaur, and they can tell me what it was doing with that claw. Well, they'll tell me how old the claw is, and it, then they'll start to infer all sorts of things. And because they're the expert, and they're filling in the blanks, but those filling the blanks are just educated guesses, you know. Right. They're not empirical. Now, they'll say, well, it's a claw, and it's got to be a, you know, a predator or or what, whatever. And it might be a good guess, but there's all sorts of assumptions. And so we cannot, you know, on the age of the earth, same thing, that's a whole nother topic, but we need to trust the scriptures. What does the Bible say? And look at uh, the historical, grammatical, um, hermeneutic, but we don't figure out what secular science says. And then uh, say, okay, that must be true, and then come to the Bible, and then um, start- Play the matching game. Yeah. We, oh, well, <clears throat> science says this, therefore, we got to make the Bible say that, and then the Bible becomes infinitely plastic, or, I mean, it becomes span spandex, right. and they stretch their hermeneutical principles to match whatever the secular science says. And that's a very, very a dangerous uh, thing to get into. They'll, Absolutely. They'll go to science first. We need to look at scripture first and then interpret scripture. I'm sorry, interpret science or the data in light of scripture. Right. Not the other way around. And too often people do it the other way around. Yeah. And, and you know, I mean, not worst case scenario, but maybe the, the least bad thing that could happen there is that the science changes in 50 years. Our scientific understandings are going to continue to mm -hmm. be refined. And so that means you're playing a catch-up game, continually trying to really, if we think about it symbolically, try to appease two masters and mm -hmm. failing to please both. Right. Yeah. yeah. There was uh, several biologists who, it was Jacques Monod, I think, 
the two Nobel laureates, Jacques Monod and Francois Jacob, who figured out the Lac operon. And one of those guys, I forget, I think it was uh, Jacques Monod. I think he's, he was talking about how some Christians believe that God used evolution. And he was basically talking about theistic evolution. And he, uh, it's a loose, uh, no, I'm not saying this verbatim, but he just thought it was very odd for a Christian to believe that God would use such a cruel mechanism. Hmm. Wow, it's an astute observation. Yeah. Huh. A cruel, like here, he's, he, he uses this dog-eat-dog natural, uh, naturalistic evolution, Darwinism, the survival of the fittest. Um, the death of the unfit, um, disease, starvation, predation to build species over millions of years before humans are even on the scene. And so, you know, I, I understand that as there was an appeal to deep time. It's very mysterious. Uh, oh, you know, these dioramas you see in the museum and these big, huge salamander-like creatures creeping around these uh, weird-looking plants. and and you know and it says hundreds of millions of years ago and i see that that sort of tickles the imagination right but it uh it is you have to look at all of the death in that whole period of time and then if god is sort of using evolution as a way to build species um not only is it just a flagrant just a flagrant contradiction to the, the words of Genesis. But it, it's also just, it's not in God's character to have God make life in such a cruel way. Uh, Jacques Monod was um, right on the money. Uh, it is odd that Christians should think that. Now, some say, well, Christians, you know, they, um, the Genesis isn't a science. You've heard that. Genesis isn't a science textbook. Right. I never said it was. You know, I don't think any creationist thinks it's a science book, but it is a history book. Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. And we can, we see that, that narrative and there's nothing in the Genesis account that would cause a reader to think just in a natural reading that happened over eons of time and that Adam evolved from uh, lower uh, hominids, which evolved from lower primates, which evolved from some reptiles um, or some prim primitive stem reptile, I mean, uh, mammal, which evolved from reptiles, which evolved from amphibians. Right. You don't get that at all from the text. Right. Okay. And so we Christians need to just say, enough's enough, you know, stop it. Choose it, as you said, choose this day who you, you're going to serve. Is that, didn't you? I was alluding to that. Oh, yeah. And, and you're, um, so uh, you've pointed out a couple really good theological principles that conflict with this idea of theistic evolution. One, it's not God's character, a cruel process, this, this natural selection uh, that relies on, on, on reproduction, death continually. Um, and, and then your second uh, point, it contradicts plain reading of scripture, forcing mm. these weird, uh, var varied camps that are really kind of anointing themselves as the person who's the smartest one at the table. And so because of their special ability to interpret, they're kind of qualifying themselves as an expert. And 
I don't know if that there's a direct theological contradiction there, but uh, the idea that the average Joe should be able to pick up the Bible and read the Bible without having a, a PhD in some strange discipline right. to be able to understand it, that seems logical. Yeah. What are, what are maybe one or two of, of what you think are the most important or most damaging things that happen to our theology um, or to the theology of those who adopt this theistic evolutionary perspective? You know, like I said, it's, it's a huge continuum of thoughts, but I'd say the two most damaging things is cutting loose from the biblical time frame, which happened actually before Darwin. Before Darwin wrote his book, there was enough of the, enlight the Enlightenment scientific revolution um, where man's reason was being exalted over the scriptures. And so they would still hang on to the scriptures and say, yes, it's good for life and morals and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, in terms of, you know, uh, figuring out the world around us, we can't be informed by scripture. We need to just uh, trust our senses, trust our logic, our reason. So reason starts, starts to, they'll start to operate their, their reason and their scientific studies sort of cut loose from the scriptural gui guidelines. Rejection of authority. Yeah, there's right. a rejection. They'll say, yeah, Bibles tells me how to interact and give me meaning. But in terms of figuring out the world, I need to just come to the data uh, blank. Well, you're not going to come to the to anything blank you're always going to have some presupposition right and they the um in james hutton um early geologist um the end of the um 18th century beginning of the 19th century um he started to toy with this idea of this and there there are this is a very trimmed um trimmed down history of geology but before this time, you know, most people were young, young earth geologists, like they just took the Bible as even the high centers of academia were uh, committed to what the scripture says, but then more and more getting cut off from scripture. And then the idea of the old earth came. And then that laid the groundwork. So geology laid the groundwork of millions of years. Right. And then when Darwin um, and then Charles Lyell, who wrote Principles of Geology, who took Hutton's views and sort of popularized them as this uniformitarianism. So that's what I would say. This, this is one of the things that I really um, think was the first crack in the dam was uniformitarianism, which required that you hold that rates that you uh, see in the present, you just extrapolate backwards. And so you think the Grand Canyon had to happened over eons of time because we don't see any processes um, depositing that kind of sediment in very short order. So, right. Catastrophes um, are relatively rare. Yeah. yeah that, very, on that order. Exactly. And so uniformitarianism really was the first rope that was cut that moored the science to scripture. And, uh, and so then, the, then, um, Darwin came along and just he had the foundation of lots of time that now people were starting to think in terms of millions of years. And then that gave him the, the, the right timetable to actually start formulating his theory of evolution. Um, he took principles of geology on board 
the HMS Beagle, and he was just loved it. And uh, even though Charles Lyell rejected his theory of evolution, it Lyell oh, rejected Darwin's theory. I yeah, did not to, realize that. I mean, he was an old Earth guy, but yeah. he just he was too he wasn't convinced. He wasn't convinced that. Um, and and Darwin was trying to come up with a, a completely naturalistic way of generating all of this diversity of life over this eons of time that Charles Lyell provided him. Yeah. And, uh, but, you know, Lyell wouldn't go that far. I mean, Lyell still believed that God created, um, but it was just, yeah, the time frame. Yeah, so, well, it doesn't mean that everybody was, you know, on the same page. Right. You know, right. the Absolutely. geologist gave the, like I said, the foundation, but then other people took it and ran with it. And ran with it in places that the people who provided them <laughs> wouldn't go. <laughs> right. Um, so, um, and I just think very, very smart people. Um, we're not saying that theistic evolutionists are uh, very smart people. They can, uh, we're not saying they're dumb. Certainly. Yeah, Darwin. Um, Darwin was Darwin a remarkable was, yeah. naturalist <clears throat> and scientist. He was very smart. It's not insulting somebody's intelligence, but it is saying you need to actually exercise your intelligence be content with the confines that scripture gives you and don't mm -hmm. reinterpret the scriptures to fit your pet theory so that you can fit in yeah. you know and yeah. e even the ones that want to fit in with the secular narrative still aren't fully accepted right i mean and uh, so many of Darwin's contemporaries, uh, Louis Agassiz, as an example, incredibly brilliant scientist, mm -hmm. absolutely brilliant. Darwin himself said that Agassiz was 10 times the scientist he was. Absolutely disagreed with this theory yeah. of evolution. Yeah. Yeah. Sir, so sir, many of his contemporaries. Sir, sir Richard Owen. I, I like where you're going with, uh, you're getting at this tendency we all have towards pride. Mm -hmm. um, and as scientists or science teachers or people who just love creation, uh, a lot of scientists especially though, have been tempted to try to bring together this grand theory that explains everything. That's the ultimate goal of science is to explain everything with this grand theory. And that's what Darwin was attempting to yeah, do. Was... And that's what secular science institutions have said he accomplished over since that time. For the last 150 years, we now, instead of departments of biology, we now have departments of evolution, evolution. and ecology. Yeah. And the first chapter of the text, one of the underlying tenets of all natural science is, is that evolution provides the unity and the diversity to explain everything. Right. Yeah. And that was what Darwin was trying to do is come up with a naturalistic explanation for how life diversified. He didn't, in the first edition, he didn't kick God out of the picture completely. God was there and he, he acknowledged that God may have started maybe one form of life or a few forms of life which diversified according to his theory of natural selection but then in later editions god is expunged hmm. from from the uh, text but that first edition wouldn't be allowed in him right he was still in a, yeah there was he was a still little, working out the kinks yeah there. god god was in that first edition <laughs> and that would have been um outlawed in secular Right. In a secular science <laughs> class. Um, That's ironic. It is. It is. So, um, we have a few more minutes here. Um, there's some serious theological consequences of adopting and trying to reconcile this blind materialistic evolutionary process uh, as, as the, the, the ultimate cause of, of species diversity. How about 
the scientific um, understanding, what what do you see as maybe one or two of the um, the most convincing arguments scientifically uh, against evolutionary theory? There's a we're just hearing more and more every day, especially from the intelligent design community, a critique yeah. um, of this evolutionary process, uh, which right. which a lot of folks are still holding on to, but it seems as if yeah. They're weakening, some boards are weakening under the, under the floor there. So, the reason why I think Darwinists just even laugh at the theistic evolutionists is that they're trying to bring in God when he's not, according to their theory, he's not needed. Right. And to some extent, depending on what flavor or brand of theistic evolution, they'd say, well, yeah, God's not needed for some of it, but he's needed for other parts. And so... We still have God inserted where we need him, either at the beginning or sort of interspersed along the way. The most problematic points. Let's go ahead and put God in there. Yeah, like lizards, reptiles can't become birds. We we might need God to intervene here. And and if we see some innovation that's just too big a hill, then maybe God... And that's a one subset of theistic evolution called progressive creation where god is intervening here and there but when a theistic evolutionist says yeah naturalistic processes can't do that you know a creationist can say yeah it can't you need god (laughs) but they would just say listen why don't you just toss the the narrative that you're trying to meld you're trying to take naturalistic evolution and sort of meld it with belief in God and having God be able to participate and get a participation ribbon. <laughs> um, <laughs> and that's anathema to the evolutionist. Yeah. It's like, no. So, what are you trying to mix God in? These are two very, very mutually distinct narratives and they don't blend. So, just pick one, pick the other, but don't try to blend them because they right. don't blend. Right. Um and and so the, this is where the ID people are just so strong. They they really have looked at the complexity of the cell and have unveiled, you know. And the evolutionists have also unveiled. Actually, they've done most of the unveiling because they're the bulk of the scientific community. Unveil this complexity, and they keep unveiling more and more complexity. And the ID guys are going, look. Look at this. Look at you. You guys. They're taking these remarkable discoveries and putting them in a philosophically coherent framework. Yeah. You're saying that all of these things, whether it's the bacterial flagellum or um, just countless things. I mean, that's kind of an icon of intelligent design, the bacterial flagellum. It's an irreducible complexity. But if you look at the cell and all sorts of even at higher levels of cell or tissue level or organ level or organ system level, you've got uh, just incredible teleology and right. design and no, no amount of time and random mutation can generate this thing. And I would say the key thing that is problematic with evolution is not that you can't have, we all agree that there can be change. It's just, Remember, natural selection says it selects. There's a selection process going, which means you select something that's on the table that's, you know, got variation in critters, and you select the one that's the most advantageous for survival. But the problem is, in evolution, these new advantageous 
it's not just changes. These are additions. These are new and things that are aren't even things. available. Yeah. So if you look at progression of a lower form to some, not just a different beak shape, but we're talking about going from no beak to beak or going from no feathers to feathers. Right. And I don't even care if you put the feathers on dinosaurs. You're going from no feathers to feathers. To feathers. Right. And that is an extremely complex structure. Absolutely. I mean, just you know, you're a bird guy. The, the feathers are just ridiculously complex, not only in structure, but also in their development. Right. And, um, and you have to say that just random mutation can come up with the gene regulatory networks. To plus, build. don't forget the millions of years plus uh, time. Yeah, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter how much time you give it because the information sort of unwind. Exactly. Um, and <clears throat> But even if you gave it tons of time, you're not going to get specified complex information. Everything we know about information, natural processes, don't generate it. Exactly. It doesn't matter right. how much time. Yeah. It, if anything, the information starts to erode. Right. And no amount of selection can, you read Darwin Devolves by Michael Behe. It just shows you that whatever information's there at the get-go, you can have mutations that cause a selective advantage, but it's usually a broken something. Right. It's actually reducing the amount of information in the cr creature. Like flightlessness in birds. Yeah. yeah. And it, or even the polar bear, you know, uh, and getting white. Um, it's an actual broken gene. So often evolution is de-evolution and may cause a selective advantage, but it's not. It's usually temporary and it's usually local. Uh, yeah. And it doesn't increase complexity. Right. It goes the so, opposite direction. No, I, that's really succinct. So the information problem really oh, is that's, the that's biggest the, problem. That is the biggest problem, especially if you're going from bacteria to baleen whales. Yes, you can spread it off, uh, spread it out over eons of time, but it doesn't matter how much time you give it, you're going uh, from less complex to more, m more information. And um, that, that is a mountain you cannot climb mm. because you need innovation. That's good. And so Darwin Devolves uh, is an excellent, excellent book by Michael Behe, who also wrote Darwin's Black Box. And another recommendation uh, for you guys would be Signature in the Cell. Oh, yeah, that's by a good one. Stephen Meyer. Two great places to start if you're interested in this discussion, if you're interested in the evidence. Um, that really flies in the face of, of what we think of as, as modern accepted evolutionary theory. Gordon, thanks so much. Th thank you. Well, we'll see you. See you next time. All right. Bye. Bye. Bye.